0: Thanks for joining us on this week's episode where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 39th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey.
1: Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. Mid-60s. 1966. Yeah. Exciting times. You know, a lot of what you'd expect to be going on is going on this year. <laughs> yeah. We've talked about the 60s before.
0: It's a tumultuous mm-hmm. time in America. We've done the spread though now because we did 61 and
1: 69. Now we're like, yeah, right now we're right <laughs> smack dab in the middle. So yeah, as people will probably not be surprised to hear, there's stuff going on with the Vietnam War this year. This is when we really were like, We're committed to this thing. So that was a bad decision. (laughs) But we started sending in a bunch more troops this year. And there were Vietnam protests happening. In addition to that, there's the sort of civil rights movement stuff you would expect this year as well.
0: Although we are now past sort of our major civil rights legislation that's going to come out of the era. But also still ongoing is the space race.
1: Yeah. We
0: haven't landed a man on the moon yet, so it's not over.
1: Exactly. But we and Russia this year both, I believe, land probes on the moon. Russia does it before us, but that still doesn't count because the space race entirely consists of when we land on the moon with a person. Yes, that
0: was clear to everyone from the beginning. Those From were the beginning.
1: terms. That's that's right. That's the part that always gets cut out of Kennedy's speech about how we're choosing to go to the moon. Yes. He's very explicit. about the. Part. It's in the do the other things. Yes. There's an asterisk after and do the other things where if you go down and look, it yeah. says man on the moon. human person on the moon and then the space race is over. Uh-huh.
0: Also happening domestically, some more good news coming out of the Johnson administration. Again, just domestically. Medicare in the U.S. takes effect and the U.S. Department of Transportation is created. So that's pretty
1: neat. He really was doing so much good stuff that wasn't... Anything to do with Vietnam. Totally. Also, in good news, this is the year of
0: the Supreme Court case Miranda v. Arizona, which gives us Mm -hmm. our Miranda rights. So we all know them from TV and movies.
1: (laughs) Any TV shows about cops, you know them.
0: Now they have to read Uh, you your rights before they bring you in.
1: Yeah. And in what I'll call less good news, Ronald Reagan begins his political career this year. He becomes governor of California. Setting off a chain of events that will lead to all of the horrors we're experiencing today. Kind
0: of the dismantling of everything Johnson did.
1: <laughs> yeah. Every time we've said, oh, this is the year that that cool Supreme Court decision happened or this law was passed and then we followed that up with, but it doesn't happen anymore. It's been completely dismantled. That's because of Reagan. Yeah. So- Reagan's the start of that. So there's... <laughs> There's a lot of fun pop culture stuff going on this year. This is the year the Beatles release Revolver, but it is what later becomes known as sort of the beginning of LPs, like full albums as music projects becoming a thing. The Beach Boys release Pet Sounds, Bob Dylan releases Blonde on Blonde, and we have Revolver from the Beatles. So everybody started to think, I could release a set of music that all goes together and you're supposed to listen to it as one piece instead of just singles. Something that's kind of died now too. that's true it had its moment but while all of that is happening the best-selling album of the year unsurprisingly to everyone is the sound of music soundtrack
0: yeah we'll be looping back around to talk about the sound of music later but it was big Mm -hmm. also in pop culture this year something that i want to mention if you were me in 1966 (laughs) you'd be losing your mind once no no one was me. But if I were a child in 1966, TV, mm-hmm. it, I, I would have lost my mind. This is the year that Star Trek premieres. And this is the year that the Adam West Batman series premieres. And as you may know, listening to this podcast, I recently did a rewatch of the 66 Batman series. And it did occur to me as I was doing that, like, I can't imagine being a child in these two shows premiering in the same year. Like, <laughs> you would have lost oh your
1: mind. God. I
0: Dream of genie and Bewitched were also in the air. There were a ton of good sitcoms going on. Yep. Good times. good times
1: in tv so if it's good times in tv it must be good times in the movies as well right sure we'll see (laughs) who's
0: to say i mean batman 66 the movie also came out so yes if anything it's a good year for batman yeah my favorite batman (laughs) There you go. Okay, so we should get into what was nominated this year. The first, alphabetically as always, was A Man for All Seasons, a drama about Thomas More and his refusal to sign an oath that says Henry VIII is the head of the church. It stars Paul Schofield, Orson Welles, and Robert Shaw. It was directed by Fred Zinnemann, written by Robert Bolt. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards and it won six Best Picture. Best Director, Best Actor, Paul Schofield, Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium, Best Cinematography, Color, and Best Costume Design, Color.
1: Next, we have Alfie, a dramedy about a womanizer, starring Michael Caine. It was directed by Lewis Gilbert and written by Bill Naughton. It was nominated for five Academy Awards and it won zero. Up next is The Russians Are Coming. The
0: Russians Are Coming, a comedy about Russians who beach themselves on an island off the coast of Massachusetts during the Cold War, during this year, presumably. I think it's, you know, set mm-hmm. the time. It stars Carl Reiner, Eva Marie Saint, and Alan Arkin. It was directed by Norman Jewison.
1: It was written by William Rose, and it was nominated for four, and it also won zero. Then we have The Sand Pebbles, a drama about an American gunboat engineer in occupied China during the 1920s. It stars Steve McQueen, Richard Attenborough, and Candace Bergen. It was directed by Robert Wise and written by Robert Anderson. It was nominated for eight, and it won zero. (laughs) And then last is Who's
0: Afraid of Virginia Woolf, a drama about a couple at a New England college who have late-night guests. It stars Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, George Siegel, and Sandy Dennis, It was directed by Mike Nichols, written by Ernest Lehman. It was nominated for 13, and it won... Five. Best Actress Liz Taylor. Best Supporting Actress Sandy Dennis. Best Art Direction Black and White. Best Cinematography Black and White. And Best Costume Design Black and White. I like how in our notes we don't call her Elizabeth Taylor. We just, we're just we just now in Liz. She's
1: Liz. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> we all know her. Yeah.
0: It's so pretty wild that three of our movies came home winless. With good amounts of nominations between them, but... No nope. yeah.
1: <sighs> something's out there sucking up all of the wins. Okay, so we should talk about what the highest grossing movies of the year are so you get a sense of what the people are watching, because mm-hmm. who cares what the Academy's watching, really. The top five are Hawaii, The Bible in the beginning, Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf, The Sand Pebbles, and A Man for All Seasons. And our other two nominees, The Russians are coming The Russians Are Coming. And Alfie are also in the top 10. The Russians are coming as six, and Alfie is nine. So pretty aligned with what the people are watching. Good alignment this year. Somehow the Academy didn't choose to recognize Hawaii or the Bible in the beginning. And you know what? Thank God. Right? (laughs) A couple of epics that neither of us would have been very excited to watch.
0: So we have a good amount of, of notable film news this year. The first is Walt Disney died. Well, Disney, Big news for Hollywood: a pioneer, a titan, he passed away. And the,
1: the winningest person in Academy Awards history. Also true. Also this year, as you have noticed, when we list out these categories in these years, there is a split between black and white and color in a number of award categories. And this is the last year that they split art direction, cinematography, and costume design into black and white and color. Also this year, Yakima Knut won
0: an honorary Oscar for achievements as a stuntman for developing safety devices to protect stuntmen everywhere. Now, if you do not know who Yakima Knut was, we did not. And we did not. But we have seen him multiple times already through the course of this podcast. He did that incredible stagecoach stunt that we talked about where the guy like Mm -hmm. drops down in between the horses and then onto the ground and the stagecoach rolls over him. He also doubled Clark Gable in Gone with the Wind during the Burning of Atlanta scene. We have not watched this one yet, but we know we will. He choreographed and helped perform the Ben-Hur chariot race scene, which apparently took five months to do. Five months. We're really hoping that it's worth it when we watch that one. Honestly. And then this next piece of information is probably the most incredible thing about him. Yes. So John Wayne, as we all know, has a very famous sort of walk and and way of speaking, which we mentioned Mm -hmm. in Stagecoach was not fully developed yet. Yeah. It turns out that's all based on this guy. He is doing (laughs) a Yakima Kanut impression through most of his career, which then, of course, gets parodied, which is
1: fascinating. So when people are parodying John Wayne, they don't know it, but they're parodying Yakima Kanut. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> what a legend
1: fascinating <laughs> so as we already mentioned the sound of music the soundtrack's crushing it this year not just that but the sound of music the film which came out in march the previous year 1965 returned to number one at the box office this year six times <laughs> People just couldn't get enough of it. <laughs> they were like, I guess we could go see The Sand Pebbles or, or did you hear that The Sound of Music is still playing? Yeah. Or we
0: could do The Sound of Music again. And everyone was always like, again, 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 again. The Sound of Music is famously a super high grossing film with the longest of legs. <laughs> so yep. it's, it's still playing out this year. People are still loving The Sound of Music.
1: Fair enough, I love it. And once you've learned the songs, you want to go back and sing along. Yeah, it's a fun time. (laughs) All right, so big news in 1966, but we should talk about these five nominees, Mm -hmm. starting with what won? Well, as we mentioned at the top, it was a man for all seasons.
0: We tried to get a sense of at the time if that was a surprise. It didn't seem like it. Obviously, it, it was one of two films that were nominated for Best Picture that won any other awards. So, you know, didn't seem like it was a huge surprise. Didn't seem like anyone was super offended by it. Later.
1: Yeah, and it won some, some of the other big lead know, up awards yeah. that year. But what's the historical consensus now?
0: I think it's maybe a little bit more mixed. You know, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is a classic of American mm-hmm. cinema at this point. It is the only one of these films on the AFI Top 100 list. Of course, I guess A Man for All Seasons wouldn't be because it's not an American film, but, True. you know. So I don't know if anyone thinks any of those other three that didn't win awards should have won, but I would think that at this point it's down to these two.
1: I've seen a fair few times lists where people are like, yeah, yeah, Man for All Seasons, but clearly... Mm. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf should have won, looking back. So I think that's probably sort of the consensus now. Yes. But who cares about the consensus? It's about us. This is our (laughs) podcast. Absolutely. So are we mad about the fact that uh, Man for All Seasons won Best Picture? Are you mad? Yes. same Z's. Okay, let's go
0: through the other ones. Would you have been mad if Alfie won Best Picture?
1: Yes, would you? Yes. Would you have been mad if the Russians are coming? The Russians are coming One Best Picture? Yes. Same yes, but we'll talk about it. Sure. And would you have been mad if the Sand Pebbles won Best Picture? Yes. Same. And would you have been mad if Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf won? No. No. Okay. So I think in our minds, we've decided there's only one right answer. We can all go home. <laughs> yes.
0: No, but we'll <laughs> talk about all of them. As we always do. So we can start with our double yeses. You want to start with the winner or end with the winner in our double yes discussion? I guess it's our duty to end with the winner. Okay. Well, that
1: means we start with Alfie. What's it all about? What's it all about? Alfie is about a guy named Alfie who is a serial womanizer. His whole vibe is he sleeps with a bunch of ladies and he calls all of the women in his life it literally. Yeah. So we're and talking birds. about a, and birds, birds and also it. So he's going through his life, you know, and then one of the women that he's seeing gets pregnant. He wants her to get an abortion, she doesn't want to get an abortion. And so she ends up having the baby and they're still like sort of together and he's seeing the kid a little bit, but He's not the type to be like, oh, I should do the right thing and marry you or whatever the thing to do in the 60s is. And then there's this other guy who seems to be a fairly nice, stable, normal guy who's really in love with her and keeps hanging around and wanting to be with her and he proposes and she's like you know what it's probably way more stable for my kid if I just bury this guy and then he can be the dad and I will leave Alfie behind so she does that and Alfie feels a little bad about it because there was something that he liked about this kid but he sort of just moves on mm-hmm. and then he has kind of a health scare there's something going on with him that he gets prescribed rest basically <laughs> he gets sent to a place where he can just chill out for seemingly like six months. Like it was a long time that they sent him there. this is what
0: tuberculosis treatment was like at the time. They just sent you to convalesce.
1: Well, and it's England. So it's like nothing has changed since Victorian novels where they're like, the treatment is go to Bath. (laughs) Take in the sea air. So he goes and he's convalescing. And the guy that he shares a room with has this wife who visits him occasionally. and, And then Alfie gets out. He hooks up with the wife of the guy. Then... Things come back to haunt him because she is also pregnant. Crazy how this keeps happening with these women. (laughs) What are the odds? She, however, is married and has children and can't just have this unexpected baby from when her husband was in the hospital. And so he's going to help her out. She needs to get an abortion. So he finds a guy who comes to the house he does house call abortions and so she gets this abortion and then he is completely unable to handle it of course because he has no emotional depth so she's like having a moment afterwards and he basically is like you you want me to leave and she's like yeah that'd be great (laughs) so he goes away and then you know he ends up coming back and seeing the aborted fetus is still in the kitchen. And it has a profound effect on him. He's like thinking about his life and what it all means. And the fact that he just was able to so cavalierly have this woman abort the fetus and it doesn't affect his life at all and blah, blah, blah. So then it kind of ends with him having this. He literally is like, what's it all about? (laughs) He's trying to figure out if he should change his ways and whatever it's like a fair summation yeah of alfie. yeah i think so i think also it's worth mentioning
0: right the thing about this film is alfie breaks the fourth wall and not just yes. occasionally like almost half no. the film maybe is it's him. the structure of the movie is him talking directly to us the audience which is interesting yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's what there is to say about alfie <laughs> The structure of it's interesting. I think the thing that's frustrating is Alfie seems to get up to the point of recognizing that something is impacting him emotionally. And then he pulls back and he does that over and over again. And at the end, it's the same thing where he gets close and he's like, "Mm, no, I don't know. What could be going on? You're like, "Okay,
1: Yeah. Like what? What was the point of all of this? As he's as the movie's going on, he's horrible. Like he's Michael Caine. He's charming. Sure. He's watchable. Right, And then he delivers lines and you're like, oh, that's a funny line. But overall, the guy is fucking awful. (laughs) So you're getting most of the way through the movie. And I'm like, he better be in for quite the fucking reckoning. This better be a movie that leads to him having a huge realization about his life and changing his ways. It's not that. I feel like that's kind of what the structure is like. You're supposed to feel like he's having a big moment at the end, but what he's saying and doing, I'm like, is he having a big moment or is anything changing at all? I have no idea.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading some reviews of this movie and some people really do read it as a critique. The idea is it is supposed to show you that him sleeping around leads him having a life that isn't full of meaning. But you do Mm -hmm. want the character to come to that realization. Because I think you always have to think about different people watching any kind of movie right the person watching this movie already thinks that what alfie is saying is correct is this movie enough for them to wake up mm-hmm. alfie is so like a today a red pill he'd have a youtube channel and a tiktok and yeah
1: he also is not what i think you think of it uh, today would be sort of like an incel or something right which is no he's like andrew because- tate yes he's <laughs> Well, he probably would be sex trafficking then if you were
0: around today. Well, there's another woman that we didn't mention, this woman, Annie, who he, a trucker picks up this hitchhiker on the side of the road. You're right. He is sex trafficking, <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> in the film. Yes. I was like, oh my God, is he kidnapped this woman? So a trucker picks up this hitchhiker. Yeah. She's going along with him. Alfie's working as a chauffeur at this point in this movie. Mm-hmm. He stops at this rest stop that the trucker also stops at. And he basically convinces the girl like, oh, don't go with this guy. Come with me. Yeah. And then she does. And then we cut to the future and they've been together a while. And it seems like she's trapped in his house doing this cooking and cleaning and sleeping with him.
1: And, and he just <laughs> comes in and out and like
0: yells at her and then yeah. leaves. <laughs> You're like this fucking guy. So, yeah, he's like very much today an Andrew Tate type and so yeah i just i don't know if you're the person who's susceptible to the andrew tate types that this movie would lead you to the path of oh yeah this was the wrong move because he ends it not understanding anything that's happened in his life
1: yeah and there is a vague sense of him being like i feel like kind of unfulfilled or something like something doesn't feel exactly right i like that child i don't know (laughs) yeah but then he's like i don't really know why huh yeah okay that's the, <laughs> Like that's that's the the just keep moving on and you're like you should take a minute but maybe th- you're so close just keep thinking about it for a little bit longer yeah but see that the problem for me too is the whole thing is wrapped up in anytime he has any connection to anything it's his child or mm-hmm. some like a progeny of his yeah. there's never a moment where he's like oh maybe women are also people no
0: there's no <laughs> like that
1: doesn't come into this at all, there's
0: no revision in his, his sense that women aren't it at any point in this movie. It's There's also the thing too of this movie; we never see really any women resisting Alfie, so it's not. It's no. also not portraying women in a complex or interesting way. I guess the doctor he sees with the tuberculosis doesn't sleep with him, but yeah, he never tries to actively hit on a woman who's like, "You are gross and weird, and no, thank you." Which you would like to see as well as sort of the range of how people might react to him
1: things that I thought were interesting about it I really liked the scene where he's getting his diagnosis because mm-hmm. the way that it plays out is he's in this doctor's office and she's examining him and and he's having his speech to camera. So he's talking about something completely different than the entire medical examination. Yes. You're like half paying attention to what's going on with that, but mostly you're listening to him because he's talking to you about something else. And so then she keeps asking questions and saying things and it gets clearer as it goes on. Like, oh, something serious is happening <laughs> with you. Like, maybe you should be paying attention to yeah. what's happening here. And I liked how that played out. And then he faints when he
0: gets his diagnosis.
1: I know. (laughs) I also will say, I thought it was fascinating that in this 1966 movie, an abortion happens. The abortion
0: scene was interesting. Even if, again, like the outcome of it isn't what we wanted dramatically for the character. Like, Apparently abortions became legal in Britain a year after I think I looked it up in 67. So they are still illegal when this is happening. And yeah, that
1: whole scene was pretty interesting. It was wild to see that happen because I feel like I mean, obviously, we could have a whole fucking conversation about abortion in m- movies. But up until recently, women would consider getting an abortion, but they would not get an abortion in a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's very rare that that happens. And that's part of why Dirty Dancing is so interesting and like a very important piece but yeah in this you're like it's 1966 we're still technically under the Hayes code
0: yeah that was also interesting to think about we talked when we did 69 that the Hayes Code officially ended but they were enforcing it less and it's clear in this year that they're enforcing it less
1: right so that just the fact that it happened i thought was pretty wild whether or not you know it was effective storytelling yeah
0: so alfie that's alfie yep up next is the russians are coming the russians are coming the russians
1: are coming Give me the brief Russians are coming breakdown.
0: So the Russians are coming starts off with a bunch of Russians on a submarine who accidentally beached themselves on the shores of a small island off the coast of Massachusetts. How did this happen? Well, the captain wanted to see America. Why? Because he never had before.
1: <laughs> That's interesting, right? Yeah. He's coming up on the coast of America. He's like, oh, shoot, get closer. <laughs>
0: So a bunch of them leave the ship to try to figure out how to unbeach themselves because they know Mm -hmm. that if they get caught, right, they're going to – people are going to think they're spies. People are going to think something's happening and it was all an accident. could start a war, dude. Yes. And so they come upon a small house that's sort of off away from town. And that's where Carl Reiner and his family are staying. They're on vacation. They don't live in this, mm-hmm. this place. And they, a couple of the ones who can speak English come into the house. and They're like, do you know where we could find a boat? We're just we're trying to find a boat. And the son is like, are you Russians? <laughs> this little kid. And so the ruse is, is gone. They were pretending to be Swedish, I think. And so it's really just a farce. And I don't want to get into all of the, obviously, the details of what happens. But basically, it gets out that there are Russians here. And and so the townsfolk think that the Russians have invaded. And so they, they gin up a, a force to help repel the Russians. And so it's the townsfolk running around this island trying to find these Russians that they can't find. The Russians trying to get a boat or some way to get their submarine back in the water. They end up splitting up. The group of Russians and basically the, the submarine is able to get themselves off the beach. So they don't actually need anything, but they need the the seven or eight they've sent off to come back to the, the ship so they can leave. And uh, over that, course of time, you know, Carl Reiner's family learn that those the Russian guys they met aren't so bad. They're really just trying to get back home. One of the handsome young Russian soldiers falls in love with the family's babysitter. And at the end, the submarine makes its way around to where the town is on the island and they're threatening to blow everything up if they don't return these seven missing Russians but like no one knows where they are they've, they've, they've literally disappeared well the
1: problem is yeah Alan Arkin and like the one other guy are there but the other ones got sent off on the boat to go find the submarine so it's like they're not here they're on their way to you so they're threatening to blow up the
0: island one of the townsfolk runs off to phone the president and the department of defense to tell them the Russians are here and there's a standoff and then a little boy who's climbed up to the top of a bell tower to see better he the the railing breaks and he falls off and he's trapped on the roof by his belt buckle he's hanging off the roof and everyone gets together like oh no we have to save this little boy including the russians and so they come together and they form a human pyramid to get up to the roof (laughs) to save the little boy and then they do it and they're like yay and then the guy comes back and he's like i phoned the the navy they're coming and so the town gets together and they're like We'll give you an escort. We're going to get you back out to sea. And also the other Russians have arrived on their boat as well. So they get all the Russians back on the submarine. The townsfolk have come together. The the Navy does arrive, but they're like, we have no idea what's happening. We'll figure this out later. This is really weird. And the Russians leave. And it is a farce and a comedy. Mm -hmm. And how did you feel about the Russians are coming? The Russians are coming. I
1: thought it was a really fun time. I enjoyed myself. Alan Arkin as the head of the Russians on land great mm-hmm. he got nominated for an Oscar for it and I fucking loved him Carl Reiner's funny too both of them are so young that they're like almost recognizable <laughs> or unrecognizable because <laughs> yes. you know them from all of these later roles. I found in um, particular
0: seeing young Carl Reiner really
1: weird <laughs> yes well there was Ellen Arkin was like that's Alan Arkin but then as he talked and acted yeah. and stuff you were like oh that, yeah that's Alan Arkin but Carl Reiner I was like damn <laughs> so different but yeah i mean it was just sort of fun silly farce stuff and the russians doing silly russian things and there's like a whole five minute slapstick sequence where carl reiner gets tied to this woman and they're like trying to escape while they're tied together <laughs> like just silly goofy stuff and then at the end they were like we got to throw in a little bit of why we're making this and so it's sort of a can't we all just get along we're all just people sort of moral at the end and you're like it's nice yeah i thought it was funny and then i thought it was nice absolutely (laughs) yeah
0: I had a similar experience. I like this. I thought, you know, it's like anything else. Some of the gags are going to work better for you than some of the other ones. And that's totally yeah. fine. But I thought this movie was actually fascinating to watch after our revisiting of the Red Dawns in our 2012 year. Oh, yes. <laughs> because Red Dawn posits that very few people would resist a communist invasion. And this comedy posits that everyone would get their guns, which I think is what we talked about, to that's true. repel. A bunch of invaders. Literally everyone in the town gets together, they compile all of their guns, and then they're just Mm -hmm. running around. But I was obsessed with the guy who played the police chief, who is just like there's clearly no Russians here. Nothing is happening. We are a small island off the coast of Massachusetts.
1: I love the way that it plays out because it's also sort of about mass hysteria Mm -hmm. and the way that you know all of these small town folks hear one rumor and all of a sudden they're ready to fight a war against what might not even, they might not even exist, the Russians. But yeah, the cop was hilarious (laughs) because he's like dragged out of bed early to deal with this. And the way they get the report is that this one woman, she happened to see them trying to steal a car, and so they end up well she you know, happened to see them try to steal a car and then immediately went, Russians <laughs> yeah <laughs> so they they end up having to like tie her to a wall basically to, to keep her out of the way. but she gets a report out to the one woman who runs the phones on the island, and that's where all of the information is coming from for the entire island that this one woman was like, "I saw Russians." <laughs> so that's why the cop is like that does not sound well, also, like, like a real she's report
0: a, a kook apparently she's always yeah. complaining about things that aren't happening one of my favorite scenes in this movie is one of the rumors that gets started is that the russians have taken the airport I
1: know. and there are
0: <laughs> paratroopers on the ground and so they all drive out to the airport and they get there and it's like Two dilapidated propeller planes and one guy who works at the airport in a little booth. And they're like, did did the Russians come? And he's like, what are
1: you talking about? (laughs) I haven't seen anyone. Have you been here all day? Yeah, Yeah. I've just been fixing the plane. (laughs)
0: Our, Our airport has been taken.
1: Oh my god, that was amazing! I also enjoyed at one
0: point the whole town goes into a bar as they're strategizing, and they decide they need to warn these people who live up in another remote part of the island. And so they tell this drunk guy he needs to get his horse to ride up there to get them. And there's just these scenes in the movie intercut where this guy is, this drunk guy is trying to get his horse that I loved.
1: <laughs> the horse just keeps walking away from him. Yes. <laughs> the entire length of the movie he can't get his horse to come and then by the end he's just collapsed in the field because he's so drunk and tired and then the horse walks over it. him <laughs> that was great yeah i love oh, that oh man
0: also this was a very small thing and just like one of those things in movies where like, I don't, I just, I just, it's just this little detail. You mentioned there's that whole slapstick scene where Carl Reiner is tied to the the phone operator. And so when they finally mm-hmm. are able to get out and get down onto the street, Carl Reiner's family arrives and they're trying to untie him and a guy runs up and he
1: just has a cat in his hands. I, I noticed that too. <laughs> he has a cat and he drops the cat and then he starts helping with Carl Reiner. And you're like, what? Where did the, the cat come The cat <laughs> had a cat. But I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic. Yeah. So, this is a fun one. <clears throat> I liked it a lot. I think if, people should watch this if they have it available to them. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is obviously very silly, even though. All along, you know, you're reading the message of these Russians are also just people that are caught up in this same situation and they're like just trying to get out of yeah. this shit without any damage. And so it's getting its point across. But then as it gets to the end and they start to be like, we're going to we have a message to talk about. There's a good scene where the dad almost shoots Galen Arkin. Mm-hmm. Because they think that their family's in danger because the other Russians come back and then they can't find the babysitter and the kid. But it's just because they're having an idyllic day on the beach they're together. they having the <laughs> time. They're falling <laughs> in love. They are. But because they can't find them for a second, then Alan Arkin is there. Carl Reiner, he's like driving car towards him, and Carl Reiner's pointing a gun at him and he shoots at him and you don't see what happens for a second. And then immediately the kid appears. Yeah. And Carl Reiner's like, Oh my god, did I kill Alan Arkin? (laughs) Because they have sort of a bond at this point, even though they are on opposite sides. And so there's this great moment where he's like walking up to the car to see what's happened. And you're like, they wouldn't kill Alan Arkin, would they? And they open the door. And yeah, luckily, Alan Arkin's like, I'm not hurt, only my pride or whatever. (laughs) And then they all go along together. But I did like the little moments of seriousness. I thought they worked well. It was good. I liked it. Yeah. All right. That brings us to the sand pebbles. What happened in the sand pebbles? I mean, so much. Honestly. (laughs) It's three hours long. I'll give you the briefest possible version of the sand pebbles. So we've got Steve McQueen. He's in China in the 20s. He works for the U.S. Navy. He's getting transferred to a different gunboat than wherever he came from. But in the process of getting there, he meets these various other Americans who happen to also be in China. One of them is Candace Bergen. She's a teacher who works with this missionary. So then he gets to his ship. He's sort of the only naval engineer on the boat. And then they have a bunch of Chinese guys that they've hired who are the ones who actually run the engine mm-hmm. so there's sort of some political stuff happening there because the guy who already was there feels like he's responsible for the engine and steve mcqueen shows up and it's like everything's gonna run my way because i'm actually in charge so there's a little bit of tension that guy who had been running the engine ends up dying in an accident when they're trying to service the engine And then he has to promote one of the other guys. So he's sort of training this guy named Pohan to be the replacement. So they have formed this bond. And then in the meantime, the American friend of Steve McQueen has met this girl at the bar that they always go to, who is there having to pay off a debt. The guy who owns her debt will only let someone buy her for $200. So the friend of Steve McQueen is like, I'm going to get the $200 for you and I'm going to it off they end up getting the money and trying to pay for her but then the guy doesn't want to accept it because there are other guys there that are willing to pay so it becomes like this auction they end up absconding with her and then they're kind of on the run stuff continues to happen on the ship while all of that's going on the friend has been sneaking out to see the woman that he loves one time he goes and he gets sick because it's cold and he ends up dying so Steve McQueen goes out to find out what the hell happened to him. He's there dead. And the girl's like, I don't know what to do. This is a bad situation. The police show up and get into a conflict with Steve McQueen. They end up killing the girl. And then they blame Steve McQueen for killing her. So then they're coming back to the boat. And they're like, you need to give us Steve McQueen because he killed a girl in our town. And so there's even more of a standoff because all of the other guys on the Navy boat don't like Steve McQueen. He's a are and there's this pretty tense, interesting scene where the captain wards off a mutiny. So then, God, then what happens? <laughs> so then an
0: incident happens off screen at Nanking, which yes, basically means every American needs to get out of China. Like things have yeah, gotten even like, worse. it's
1: like we're past the point. Americans got to go. And so they've been ordered to just leave. But they know that there's this missionary and Candace Bergen that are living at this place called China Light. And they need to go get them out, too. They ignore their own orders so that they can go up to China Light to rescue these people. So then it's the captain and Steve McQueen and a few other guys go out on this mission to get them. And they arrive there. The guy doesn't want to leave. So it turns into this deadly situation. He ends up getting shot they're like fending off these people who are coming candace bergen doesn't want to leave but the captain is like we cannot leave you here because what will happen is they will rape and kill you and then all of the american military is going to have to come back in and have a bloody battle and everybody's going to die over this situation so like we gotta get you out of here so it becomes this standoff the that- they're gonna all leave the captain's gonna stay to hold them off but the captain gets shot so then steve mcqueen is like no you guys leave and i'll stay and hold them off but he also ends up getting shot and they maybe make it back the last shot of it is candace bergen and the one or two other guys walking through the hills yeah and that's the sand pebbles whoo a lot of things happen It was a long movie (laughs) yeah so like a
0: couple of global things, I guess. I thought it's an interesting setting. This is not a yes. period of history that we talk about much in the U.S. I don't think it's covered mm-hmm. in our history curriculum that we were just in China for 100 years, forcing them to let us monitor the rivers and have favored nation status and all this other stuff. I think mm-hmm. the internal politics of what's going on in China at this period is interesting, and they're showing that. And I said to you the other day when we were talking about this, I appreciate that they hired actual Asian and Asian American actors to play the Asian characters, which is not a thing that always happens in Not in the 60s. So there's things to definitely like about this movie. I just think Mm -hmm. it's very long. I'm not sure everything in it is necessary or interesting. There are elements that I liked better than other elements. Steve McQueen is having a romance with Candace Bergen. I don't know that I needed that
1: it's unnecessary because they see each other like three times yeah and so then they can have like kind of this flirtatious energy or whatever they want to have but then there are scenes where they feel like they need to make it explicit that it's a romance and you're like don't need them no cut those scenes
0: unnecessary i also thought that there are things that are drop throughout this movie so in the first half this guy on the boat Stosky is this sort of petty antagonist he's the one who gets into the fight with McQueen's assistant that he's training Pohan and also he initially is sort of assaulting and and being cruel to Melee, the lady that McQueen's friend Frenchie falls in love with David Attenborough and then
1: it's just kind of Richard Attenborough
0: did I say David David yeah (laughs) with Richard Attenborough and then it's just kind of dropped like after the first half stoski is no longer someone who's antagonistic in any like personal way Well, to he does sort of tried to. he's one of the ones who tries to get yeah. them to hand over but the whole about. boat is is like that at that point point. and then yeah. i thought it was strange too and i don't know if you mentioned this but so they have the whole long boxing scene with Pohanna. it's quite a long scene and then he's murdered really shortly afterwards and you're like did i need this whole boxing scene and they were just gonna kill him Can they i just think there are cuts that could have been made
1: yeah i mean there's it's three hours there are plenty of cuts that could have been made though i appreciated the time they put into building his friendship with pohan because then in the scene when pohan gets murdered it's really sad i didn't even tell that part pohan gets kidnapped by the people that are you know staging the siege on the ship and they are gonna kill him because he's been working with them and so they're torturing him in view of the ship and they are all the soldiers are just standing there watching it happen and he starts calling out that they should shoot him and so steve mcqueen against orders, shoots him because he can't watch him get tortured to death which
0: then he goes down into the belly of the ship where he first met pohan and is shoveling colon which is the first thing he saw him do and he's then he starts to cry it's really sad i thought the whole i love the whole pohan storyline i thought it was really effective and affecting but you're right that the boxing scene's long the boxing scene's really long I would keep the pohan thing, like if that actually yeah. was the the core of the movie, because when they first come to China, there's a bunch of Chinese people working on the boats, and they talk about how that relationship has developed over time. And when Steve McQueen first gets on the boat, too, one of the Chinese laborers is shaving, maybe Stosky, honestly. And McQueen is like, "I do my own shaving, and everyone's like, "You cannot." <laughs> That's their job. Yeah. We let them do their jobs and then we do our jobs. And so you mm-hmm. see sort of the devolution too of their relationship with their own Chinese laborers who at first seem relatively content to be on the boat doing this work. And then they all jump, sh- they literally jump ship at one point.
1: Yeah. Well, as well they should,
0: or they're all going to be the yeah. next Pohon. So that was all very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We could, if we could drop the Candace Bergen stuff f- from the romance perspective <laughs> and really yeah, figure in on the political stuff i think, I think it could just be tightened
1: in a lot of places yeah. but yeah same as you S- super interesting era that i don't know much about i loved it as a setting and the sort of moral of the whole thing at the end is like boy american imperialist intervention is is dumb like it's all <laughs> pointless and awful and everybody dies and like we shouldn't be there <laughs> and you know that's a fair enough good enough moral to the story and then you even get the part that's him and you know, building this relationship with Pohan. And it's wonderful and beautiful. And he's like, yay, multiculturalism. I love this friend. And then the fact that he's there is why Pohan dies. (laughs) It's bad. (laughs) So yeah, I thought there was a lot that was super interesting about it. And then it could have just been shorter.
0: Okay, well, that brings us to the winner, A Man for All Seasons. So what happens in A Man for All Seasons is it is the reign of King Henry VIII, Maddie's favorite film character. But we <laughs> we are not focused on Henry VIII in this movie. We're focused on Thomas More, who is a nobleman who becomes the Lord Chancellor under Henry. The Lord Chancellor is responsible for the court system in England. And so basically, we're at the period of time where Henry is trying to divorce his first wife and marry Anne Boleyn. And he needs his staff to figure out a way to make that happen. And Thomas More is a staunch Catholic. He is a staunch believer in the rule of law. And basically, after Henry pushes, he tries to get Thomas More to help him push the divorce through. Thomas More will not. And then after he does push the divorce through, he's basically making everyone sign loyalty oaths that say like, yes, we agree with this. Yes, Henry is the head of the church and Thomas More will not sign this loyalty oath. He will not condemn it. He just will not affirm it. And so then a good portion of the movie becomes about People trying to get him to state his views on the loyalty oath. And his position is the law basically states that as long as he doesn't condemn it, he has not broken any laws. So he's not committed treason. And so then this ends up leading to basically a kangaroo court or this guy who has been around the entire movie, Richard Rich. Great richie name. rich richie rich pal yeah macaulay culkin macaulay culkin. <laughs> macaulay culkin wanders in and he's like i got a mansion now. now richard rich who's played by john hurt a very also young john hurt which was weird for me as a viewer but neither here nor there who has been sort of around thomas More. he's been asking for a position he's very ambitious thomas moore keeps telling him like it's a fool's errand don't get involved in this stuff it sucks the life right out of you but he ends up allying himself with cronwell thomas Cromwell. Five people, almost every character in this Thomas, movie is Thomas, named Thomas, 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 who is not Henry. Get more and names. Richie. <laughs> and, yeah, Richie, Rich. And so he comes into court and basically perjures himself and says, He told me that he thinks this is a bad idea and that Henry's not the head of the church. And mm-hmm. they convict him and, and sentence him to death. And that's the story of a man for all seasons. How did you feel about it, Madeleine? <laughs> I could not have been more
1: glad to be watching this story again for like the third time in four episodes or whatever that we've been doing. I don't know why they've all lined up like this in a row, but Henry VIII is haunting us. That's the randomness, my friend. I don't know. I didn't love it. I thought it was kind of nice to be in a different perspective than just the king and his wives again. We're seeing a different angle. I just thought it was kind of weirdly made. There were parts of it that I thought were interesting, but important stuff kept happening off screen and they would just cut. Like he he's talking to Cardinal Wolsey and then all of a sudden Cardinal Wolsey's dead. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> like there is a scene where he's on his deathbed, but there's nothing leading up to it. And Then all of a sudden he's dead. And then, I, I don't know, things just kept happening where they'd be talking about a thing and then you'd cut to after It had happened. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? What? What are we doing? Like, I don't understand what's happening. My favorite parts of it were the couple of things where it became almost like courtroom drama. Yes. (laughs) Like, that stuff was all right. I liked when. He's already being held because he won't sign the oath, but then they keep bringing him in for questioning to try to get him to trip up and say how he feels about it. And so then there's this good scene where they're having this sort of like legalese debate about, you know, well, technically I didn't say blah, blah, blah. So you can't such and such. And like, that was pretty fun. And then the courtroom part when... Again, he's there being like, well, on such and such date type, blah, blah, blah. It like, yeah. <laughs> just became courtroom drama. And then they the excitement of them bringing in the guy who's clearly going to perjure himself. I like a courtroom drama. sure, But I don't know. I mean, Thomas More is sort of interesting, I guess, because anybody who's, who dies for their principled stand is always kind of an interesting person. I don't know. I mean, as somebody who doesn't really care about the integrity of the Catholic Church... <laughs> can't super relate to it and then i just think this stuff with richard rich running through i get that it's interesting that there's the payoff with him because he wants to be his little acolyte person and then he's the reason that he ends up getting killed but I just feel like at the beginning when he's like, I won't help you go into politics. I won't help you. And the kid keeps saying like, well, I could just go to this other guy. And you're like, well, OK, why don't you go to the other guy? That's fine. And then our Thomas More is like, you shouldn't. You absolutely should. The temptation is too much. But he's still in politics mm-hmm. and getting bribes and blah. And you're like, go be a fucking monk somewhere then, dude. <laughs> like, okay. I did like that it had, there's like a postscript at the end mm-hmm. about how the whole thing falls apart because as right after this has happened, everybody that sends him to their death also ends up getting sent to their death yeah. because it can't stand. You've built this system where anybody could be killed at any time, but then Richard Rich is the only one who doesn't end up having any consequences. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of fun. But I don't know. I mostly was just like, this again? That was my vibe. I thought Orson Welles looked like a painting as Cardinal Wolsey. <laughs> yeah, that he looked insane. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was great. But I mean, he's Orson Welles. I still think the funniest thing about Henry is any time it gets mentioned about him writing music. Like he turns from a monarch into this silly artist type who needs approval from everyone mm-hmm. whenever the songwriting comes up. I always love that. In anything about him. Yes. When he's like, but have you have <laughs> you heard my new song? <laughs> what did you think? Really did you think? Yeah. That's funny. What did you think of it? There were scenes in this
0: movie that I really, really liked. Individual scenes where I'm like, this is a great scene. I'm having mm-hmm. a great time. But I think sure. the stuff, stitching it together could be less compelling at times. And I think, yeah, the the beginning is feels a little confused yeah. right i think they're not super clear about thomas moore's motivation and i think there's a little bit of the fact that certainly in my mind and maybe a little bit more now in more secular times right the church and law are separate but for him they're mm-hmm. very much the same and so you're like so is his motivation the law? So is his motivation the church and it's like well
1: both for him they are one yeah yeah
0: and so, yeah, it was a little slow to start, but then as it got more into the courtroom drama elements and <laughs> these little scenes of them trying to trip him up, I was really enjoying it. I like the, you know, the thematic thrust of the movie. I think it could sit alongside your Judgments at Nuremberg's and your Costa Gavras movies. It's very much about the lo- the rise of tyranny and the loss of the rule of law and, and what that means mm-hmm. for everyone. I think the postscript speaks to that. And so I, you know, I like that as a story and as a theme But yeah, so the scenes I liked, I agree with you. The final courtroom scene is great. There's a line in it that I love where, so Richard Rich has become, I don't know if it's the chancellor for Wales, but basically he's overseeing Wales. And as he's leaving the room, Thomas More notices that he's wearing the little necklace with the the Welsh medallion. And he says to him, it profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world, but for Wales.
1: I loved that too. (laughs) so funny.
0: I I also love the scene when he's in prison and then he meets with Cromwell and Norfolk and the Cardinal who are trying to get him to sign the oath and they're like but would you say this are you saying this and he's like I'm not saying anything What about
1: but what about he's like you're not gonna catch (laughs) me I'm I'm a lawyer (laughs) I also
0: did like the scene so there's one major scene where Henry comes to speak to him about pushing through the divorce and him supporting the divorce and I did like that scene with Henry Robert Shaw is is playing it to the rafters he's He's mm-hmm. doing that thing to set people off balance where he'll be really, really angry. And then he's like, but yeah, but what about my songs? You like them? Or you And really now I'm really angry myself. again. But like, yeah. are we going to have dinner? And I did also think yeah. it was funny that during that scene, when he's initially screaming at him at the top of his lungs, they cut to inside Thomas More's house where everyone has gotten together to have Listening. a dinner and they're silent and they're like, this is so
1: awkward. <laughs> uh. I don't know if he knows, but we can hear everything he's saying. Yeah.
0: And so I did like that performance from Robert Shaw, which leads me to a question for
1: you. Hmm. Rank your King Henry VIII. (laughs) (laughs) Richard Burton's at the bottom. Okay. So boring. Uh Uh-huh. There's not enough Robert Shaw to go on. I think I'm going to have to say that Charles <laughs> the Lund, Private Life Lund. of Henry the Eighth is my favorite because he really fucking goes for it, man. Like that's a character. Okay. And what's funny about it is that he looked at a painting of Henry the Eighth and built an entire character around it.
0: Around a stance. <laughs> he started with yes. a stance, and it evolved from there. All right.
1: I think that's fair the enough. Scene though, before yeah. you move on, the scene where. Henry VIII is there yelling at him about why he won't support the divorce. That's a scene where I was like, you're not doing a good enough job explaining what the fuck's going on, because how have we ended up in a situation where this is the guy in charge? If you want a guy who will rubber stamp your divorce, pick a guy who will rubber stamp your divorce. You've picked the one guy in the country who won't rubber stamp your divorce. So I mentioned in the last time we talked
0: about this, that I, I took a course on this, and I'm trying to remember. But, you know, England throughout its history... Like, I think this is a story of trending more towards total monarchy. And so generally, the kings really need the support of their lords. And so I don't know if there was more support for more across the lords generally. And that's why Mm -hmm. he had to be selected. I can't remember how he came into this position. But I was thinking about that, too, about both these movies that we've now watched. Not so much The Private Life of Henry VIII. (laughs) Yeah. And how, you know, these are British movies. So I wonder if they take for granted that their audience is going to understand how the system of government works. And because we're Americans, we just don't. But I don't know if it's on the movie to have to explain that because, you know, that's that's a very American centric view to be like, you have to explain everything to us. We're Americans.
1: Yeah. I guess. uh, I I mean, part of my takeaway can just be this is not a movie for me. This is a movie for British people who know and care about this. (laughs) And like, they're gonna have a different experience than me. But I felt like a lot of the stuff that gets left off screen, they're assuming you know about, but it made it a weirder narrative experience. One of the things that happens off screen is the split of the church. What did you want to have happen? Any conversation about the fact that that was what was going to happen. It's like, the first thing that happens is a conversation about how, you know, he needs to sign the oath or whatever okay i just thought stuff kept happening where it was like these feel like the narrative beats of the story but they're not the what's happening in the movie
0: yeah that's not something that i particularly noticed i do think there are some elements that felt confused to me at the beginning of the movie but i forget like who does it or the legal mechanism but it does just happen they they declare henry the head of the church and break away from the pope so there's not necessarily a lot of yeah but somebody
1: does it somebody like there could be a scene where it happens i guess but yeah
0: so that was a thought i had and i yeah i feel different sort of ways about whether or not foreign movies need to fully explain their culture to foreign audiences sure i do wonder if the play would do that more effectively I was reading about the play and it sounds interesting like I'd be interested to see a stage production of this it's apparently much more Brechtian so there's a character in the play called the common man who does talk to the audience and does sort of stitch together things that are maybe happening off screen and he's the same actor but he also is playing like the guy who takes more on the boat and he's playing a bunch of other minor characters it's the same actor playing all that sounds cool (laughs) and the other thing that's super Brechtian that I was reading about is the court scene at the end the jury is just hats on sticks what <laughs> <laughs> I love that <laughs> and, and they obviously they made it much more realistic for the movie but I was like I could get into oh, this this Brechtian that time. sounds awesome again I think some really strong scenes I did like Paul Schofield in this I enjoyed him as Thomas yeah. More. there's some fun lines
1: I really wanted to like the guy who wanted to marry his daughter who kept shitting on the church and the king all the time but he just felt like an idiot i think he was an idiot (laughs) but i like i wanted there to be a character that was like this is all bullshit because you know that's how i feel about it (laughs) i mean he's not saying this is all bullshit he's saying
0: that the protestants are right which is different than saying this is all bullshit
1: well but see that's what i'm saying is
0: i wanted a character oh well i don't think you're gonna get that at this period of time The other quick thing that I liked, I was going to mention when Henry comes to Thomas More's house, he's meeting his daughter. And it's remarkable that he's educated her because it was very unusual at the time. Henry's first wife, Catherine, really popularized education for women in England. And there's a funny scene. So she's talking to Henry and then Henry turns his back to her and she stands up from her curtsy and Thomas More very gently like pushes her back down. <laughs> it's just a fun i don't think i
1: noticed that that's hilarious he's like we're not done (laughs) curtsy don't
0: don't 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 be standing up when he turns back around the man is insane (laughs) that's great and i appreciated that they made robert shaw a ginger for this role as as we've talked about previously
1: i don't know it's more henry the eighth baby
0: it's not your favorite it's not my favorite Okay, well, we have nothing else to say about that. I think that brings us to our only double no. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf?
1: Who is afraid of Virginia Woolf? Based on a great
0: Edward Albee play. It is a great Edward Albee play,
1: but they all are. Well,
0: I don't know about that, but we don't need to get into it. There are several. Edward Albee's a great writer, is. is the point.
1: So yeah, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? About a couple who live on a college campus in New England. The husband is a history professor and the wife is the daughter of the president of the college. Mm -hmm. And they are returning home from a party late one evening. They have invited over a new professor from the science department and his wife to come over because her father has told her they should welcome these people to campus. And so the whole thing takes place from like 2.30 in the morning to dawn. (laughs) As they yeah. have this interesting night of drinking, much, much drinking and conversation and the sort of secrets and tensions and backstory of our older couple and then our younger couple become revealed over the course of the evening. I don't know how much more plot no, I need mean to give That's them that. That's it. They just get
0: drunker and drunker and meaner and meaner and more and more secrets come out and they get meaner and meaner and drunker and drunker yep (laughs) and that's who's afraid of virginia Woolf. that's
1: the whole play baby so this was
0: the only one of these movies that i'd seen before i think we said last time that you might have seen this before but you couldn't remember
1: parts of it were vaguely familiar but i really think i've probably just read the play yes and maybe seen like moments of this movie but i don't think i've watched the whole thing before
0: yes and so yeah we both read the play before i
1: mean it's great it's a great play it's a great play the dialogue top notch from top to bottom and then the performances were excellent yes I take my notes
0: when I watch these movies in my phone and then I go and transfer them to a google doc so they're all in one place and I did that and I came back a couple days later and I realized that all my notes were just verbatim
1: lines (laughs) yeah I I started to write down quotes and then I was like I should probably not write down quotes through this whole thing because it's just gonna be all quotes. Yeah. <laughs> Again, there's not a ton of
0: plot. The play itself takes place in one room. One of the things that the film does is it gives us other locations, which is pretty normal for a play to film translation. It doesn't give us a ton of other
1: locations. But... It gives us the yard outside yes. the house. And some other and rooms then at in one, the house. Uh, yes. And then at one point they take a ride in the car to go to a bar kind of thing. So there's a scene where they're in a room with a jukebox mm-hmm. and then... They end up coming back.
0: It really more is about the language and just how vicious these characters are to each other. It's incredible. This is very much I'm finding right in this wheelhouse of things that I'm loving of just two maniacs tearing each other apart. It's there will be blood. It's, it's like whiplash. Yeah. <laughs> it's all of these things. And you're just like, I love it. So I actually watched this movie twice in the last couple of weeks. I watched it just once through because I haven't seen it in probably over a decade. Yeah. And then I watched it through again, following along with the play to see kind of what changes they made. Oh, I like that. And it's very similar. They cut out a little bit of backstory. Like there's monologues that they shorten. There's bits of dialogue they shorten. They dig into Nick, who's the younger guy, more about him being a biology professor. And there's more in the play about like why that. Like it's clear why Albie made that choice in the play. And I think it's a little less clear in the movie. It seems arbitrary, but -hmm. the main thing they cut out, which I think is interesting for the code, because this movie is, is pretty vulgar (laughs) as is. Oh yeah. So when they go to that restaurant and bar, Martha tears away without George. And then she picks up the young kids again and takes them back home. And then we cut to the house and honey, who's the young woman has been left in the car to sort of, Sit with her, sleep it off, sleep it off. And Martha and Nick have gone upstairs to have sex, and George is outside. And there's that great scene where George tries to get into the house, and it's it's not padlocked, it's it's locked. It has that draw the chain is the chain is on. Thank you. And in the play, because they never leave the living room, that's not what happened. You see Martha seduce Nick, like she sticks her hands in between his legs and then she starts kissing him and then George comes back into the room and they are like making out while he is in the room and then they go upstairs and he's like, that's fine, I don't care, you guys do whatever. So it's much more explicit in the play. And there's some small changes to be less explicit in the movie too. The language is a little cleaner, if you can believe it. I can't believe that. One of the funniest changes I think was when they're in that restaurant and they're dancing, there's a scene, there's a part where George calls honey monkey
1: boobs and it, oh my God, that is, uh, that moment <laughs> was so amazing.
0: <laughs> and just really quickly, in the play, he calls her monkey tits. So apparently, yeah. monkey boobs is okay, monkey tits, too much.
1: I, that's funny because I feel like in my mind, if you had asked me what he said, I would have thought it was monkey tits. Well, sure.
0: Because <laughs> monkey boobs <laughs> yeah. is a weird thing monkey to say. Monkey boobs is a
1: strange phrase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, The writing's fucking fabulous, but the performances are so good. I mean, Liz Taylor and Richard Burton, no surprise, have shockingly great chemistry. Every moment when they are interacting with each other is incredible. And then I love, like, it's such an interesting unraveling of a piece because when you first are getting home with them, there are interesting tonal shifts going on in their conversations, but you're still trying to get a read on what their deal is. So they're like kind of tired and drunk and annoyed with each other because they've been out all night and he wants to go to bed and then they're sniping at each other but then they're like kind of flirting and Mm -hmm. having an all right time and then uh, like things sort of turn on a dime to be they're pissed at each other again and you're like this is a fascinating (laughs) relationship and (laughs) as that's happening the moment they've become pissed at each other again is when this other couple arrives and into this fray they come and our main couple are not good at putting on a show like performing civility in front of these people they just it's, it's so funny because they are putting on a show sure but it's not the show you would expect <laughs> when a couple is having a fight and then no, people they're supposed the to be impressive show that. up they're like we're gonna be as fucking mean and horrible to each other and to them as possible yes. and you're like this is fascinating <laughs> but yeah richard burton and liz taylor so good and then i love they're amazing at each other's throats, but then there's a moment later on, like once way later on, when she's already slept with Nick, when the two of them together start making fun of him, and mm-hmm. like when they turn their, I love the way that that is shot on him, so good. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like he hasn't felt the combined, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like powers of them, and it becomes very uncomfortable. It does. One thing that didn't
0: occur to me until after I rewatched it was I think we probably both first read this play when we were in high school. And so I've lived with it for so long. I didn't think through, I think I was reading something where someone pointed out that on your first viewing or reading of this play, you would not realize their son was an invention. So that would be Mm -hmm. a twist at the end. And I was like, oh,
1: yeah, yeah, that's probably pretty crazy. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) yeah. You haven't thought about the fact that that's a twist in so long.
0: I I know their son's an invention going into it.
1: I'm gonna forget I
0: forgot experiencing that for the first time I'm like
1: no that's a huge part of it is the like what is happening with these people what's the deal with their son because I think for a lot of it I don't know if this is a universal experience but I was assuming the sun is dead like that's what it feels like to Mm. me is that they're telling these stories about the sun and you're like there's something weird (laughs) about the stories about the sun what's happening here and you expect it to be that the sun is dead and it's like a even more effective twist that it's like we just fucking made him up dude <laughs> yeah like that is unhinged that is not something i ever would have expected but yeah if you've known the twist for the last 15 years then i, I, I
0: forgot i forgot it wasn't it clear from the beginning you. that the song yeah. was an invention i was like oh
1: yeah that's crazy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh man what a good movie it's really good there's a Joseph Cotton reference in it. There is your My boy, boy Joseph Cotton. Very early Cotton. on, yeah. What that's in a one of the opening scenes. Dumb what a it's such a goddamn good opening scene I mean we could go on and on and on about how great Edward Albee is at Mm -hmm. writing dialogue but the way that you are introduced to this couple it's like so naturalistic and interesting you're learning so much about them and they like the one of their first conversations is she's remembered a film quote she can't remember what movie it's from and she's trying to get her husband to help her remember what movie the quote is from and you're like this is a universal experience (laughs) (laughs) especially pre-internet god so frustrating yeah, so she's just like, "What a dump!" Betty Davis says it. She comes into the room. This is what's happening. She's married to Joseph Cotton, and he, she goes into her modest home that modest Joseph Cotton bought her, and blah blah blah. She's like, "No, <laughs> in Chicago." In. And he's like, "That's it. The movie Chicago." And she's like, "It's not Chicago, you dummy." Well, first she's like, "What are you talking about? What? What is?" And he's like, "It's Chicago. What's Chicago? The movie you're talking about? No." <laughs> It's great,
0: And again, this is a story where I like the thematic content of it. They're always talking about truth and illusion. It's very much kind of similar to Life of Pi about like, is it better to live a life where you tell yourself comforting stories or is it better to face the reality no matter how harsh it is? And like, Mm -hmm. that's a question that I don't feel I know the answer to in my life. So I like stories about it. Mm -hmm. And this is very much on the side of you got to face reality, baby. And it was interesting. I recently bought The Cambridge Companion to Edward Albee and I was reading one of the essays about this. And apparently it is in some ways a response to Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh, which I guess lands on the side of living in illusion is acceptable. But I've never read that. So I can't really speak to that. No, me neither. That's interesting. But I'm I'm interested by it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just a series of excellent moments all in a row, this movie. So many good lines. I love when the girl asked to go to the bathroom and she says i just want to put some powder on my nose and george says martha would you show her where we keep the euphemism <laughs> <That's so good. laughs> come on it's so
0: good it's all so good yeah I, I was like i don't know if this is useful for all my notes to just be all the lines i love from this movie i was implying um, that your wife
1: is slim hipped the slim hipped thing is fucking <laughs> crazy <laughs> Oh my God! They, to keep talking about how a guy's wife is slim-hipped. I mean, it's so wow. cruel.
0: They're so cruel. Oh, one of the other pieces of dialogue that they took out of the movie that I that I loved was at one point. Oh, it's the point when George starts strangling Martha after she's revealed his story about the novel, and then it was an autobiographical. Yeah. And in the play, he calls her a satanic bitch. Oh <laughs> shit! <laughs> it's like that's so crazy. <laughs>
1: I, I assume that's in similar like either replacement for in the same moment as in the movie when he's like book dropper child mentioner yeah I love that so
0: much. it's all good
1: it's really good oh, it's a man. ride
0: it's excellently written it's excellently performed this is Mike Nichols film directorial
1: debut he crushes it incredible it's I mean, obviously, the performances are amazing, which a director has something to do with, but it also looks great. I mean, it's hard to shoot a movie in such a claustrophobic space, but he makes it interesting to watch. It's it's very good. <laughs> it's a very good movie. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much more there is to say about it. Just watch it. We could recite all the lines for you, but...
0: Yeah, the only other thing I want to mention about this movie, just kind of getting at the question of what people have said about it, what should have won. Maybe other people have had an experience like this. But one time when I was in college, I was going home on the train on the Amtrak down the East Coast. And I was watching Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on my laptop. And the train conductor came up behind me and he was like, is that who's afraid of virginia wolf and i said yes it is and i had a five minute long conversation with the amtrak train conductor about how great who's afraid of virginia wolf is so that's
1: fantastic people that's love how it. good it is people will love take it out the, the word streets. if you won't, if you won't take our word for it yeah listen to this amtrak train conductor because he knows it's fun
0: all right so does that bring us to some of our questions so what should have won
1: Easy answer on this one. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf should have won? Yeah. And did the Oscars get it wrong? Yes. (laughs) That's our... I don't know. It feels pretty clear in this case. It is just, you know, a little character drama with great writing and stuff. Maybe they didn't understand because they're so drawn to epics and historical things. But this is the thing that stands the test of time this year. It's iconic. It's the...
0: The Liz Taylor, Richard Burton performances in particular.
1: They're so good. Like, there are many times in history when real life couples acted in things opposite each other. And yes, often it is noticeable that they have interesting chemistry that they might not otherwise have had. But, like, this is one of those best examples of taking your off screen energy and funneling it into something incredible on screen. Yeah. All right. So we didn't have anything else. We skipped over. Was there anything else we should consider? But AFI has "Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf" mm-hmm. on their list. But we didn't see a lot of other stuff from this year that people are talking about as, you know, necessary, essential, necessary viewing, essential viewing, exactly. And then our, if we look at our box office, they sort of already got the biggest the stuff. Unless we feel like Hawaii and. What's the Bible one called? The Bible in the beginning. Yeah, we weren't yeah. going to watch those. So No. That was that. So this is what there is to work with. And I feel like if you consider cultural impact, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Still around, baby. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, with that all said, let's take a teensy tiny little stroll down to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner. Obviously, he's not alive this year. So we get to do our fun thought experiment: What could he have played? That what he would have been good in? I mean, he could be George Siegel in Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf. Yeah, we didn't mention them. I thought George Siegel and Sandy Dennis were also He's great. great. I mentioned George. I think Sandy yeah. Dennis also great. Yeah, hard to go wrong with that material. It's perfect material, but they are excellently realizing mm-hmm. it. He could be in the sand pebbles. He could. He could be your Steve McQueen. He could be Richard Attenborough. He could be a Richard Attenborough. Tragically die. They both tragically die, but... They do. He could tragically die earlier on. <laughs> earlier in the film. <laughs> he could be in The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. I think he would have been delightful in The Russians yeah. Are Coming. <laughs> That's a good tone for him, I think. I like to see him doing some more comedic madcap. stuff. Madcap. Especially one. when it's madcap. Not yeah. just... Yeah. Not just funny, but like... Running
0: around. That's movie. actually... That was my thought. I would I think of these movies... Because I, I like, I don't want to touch Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? No. Nah. It's perfect. And again, the sandpaper. But I'd see okay. him in a
1: production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. 100% on the stage? Yeah. He's getting close to playing George age. He is. <laughs> Just wait a few years and then you're George. Yeah. I think George is only in his mid-40s. I think you'd have to cast someone older these days because they read as older.
0: Older fine well we'll just wait on Jake and then when he gets a little bit older
1: he's yeah. George when he's in his late 40s yeah. we're putting him in
0: although it's worth noting Liz Taylor was like 15 years too young to play Martha and they just they just did makeup make up on her but whatever so I yeah my initial thought when we were looking at this year was put him in the Russians are coming the Russians are coming make him a little Russian guy running around yeah <laughs> Be I don't know if he can be the handsome Russian guy who falls in love with the girl that guy's so blonde and tall I don't know if that's the yeah the, the blondness is
1: sort of what sells that because he's so blonde and she's so blonde and then the part of what makes that movie work is the fun tonal shifts of scenes yeah. and so then when you're like you know the mob is assembling they're gathering their guns and then they cut to like they're having a beautiful day on the <laughs> beach together <laughs> back to the mob then to the guy chasing his horse yeah Good. i like him and the russians are coming the
0: russians are coming yeah i think that's good and i don't want him to be alfie
1: no fuck no jude law's yeah, already done it. i'm, I, I'm very yeah, curious I haven't about that watched that's what i was thinking the whole time watching it i was like they remade this movie less than 20 years ago and how the fuck did they do it because you have to change something about this guy right right i don't know i haven't i don't seen know it. either
0: maybe when we get to that year
1: nah, probably not
0: is that nominated probably not but that might have been in the year that you was and everything.
1: Law. <laughs> <laughs> All right, maybe it'll be worth doing it for the joke then. Yeah. But yeah, I'm with you. Russians are coming. Russians are coming. Sounds like a fun time. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to our conclusions. Do you see yourself coming back to any of these movies? I mean, yeah, I'll watch Who's Afraid
0: of Virginia? Well, I mean, I watched it twice in the last two weeks and I had a great time. <laughs> exactly. <both sides>. <laughs> so. <laughs> I feel like in our classic, if it were on, would I sit down and Mm -hmm. watch a little bit of The Russians Are Coming, the Russians Are Coming? Sure. I'll see you some some zany scenes. I'm not mad about it. Well I found
1: out while I was doing my prep for this that my father really likes that movie. So maybe someday when I'm home and the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming is on. We'll do a little bonding together. You? Yeah. Those two? I, same, same, those two. I mean, I there were things that a lot of things I liked about the sand pebbles, but like, hell no, am I sitting down again to watch three hours of the sand pebbles? So those are the two. The fun ones. Amazing how those are always the ones that are worth rewatching. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not always. Have we? No, not always. Have we learned anything about these silly little academy and their wants and needs and desires?
0: Well, obviously, A Man for All Seasons is a stately period drama, so there's yep. that element. I also think it's interesting. It'll be interesting to fill in the remainder of the '60s, right? Because we were a little surprised that Midnight Cowboy, which was so controversial, won three years later. Obviously, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is also pretty like abrasive and vulgar yep. and aggressive. So maybe they weren't quite ready <laughs> to be like, yeah, this, this new is a big thing. three
1: years for the Academy. Things yeah. change a lot. Yeah, I'm with you. Never a huge surprise when a historical drama wins. I guess they avoided the scope of the Sand
0: Pebbles, though. They were like not that. I would scope. have
1: preferred the Sand Pebbles winning. Hmm, interesting. I'll, also, we didn't talk about this at the time, but interestingly, because of the timing of the Sand Pebbles coming out in 1966, obviously people were reading a lot into what was happening in Vietnam. Yes, with this, even though I don't think that like it was. The book was written pre-Vietnam. It wasn't meant to be a commentary on that. But, I mean, commentary on American interventionism is all the same everywhere. That's true. It's always going to become relevant because we're always doing some nonsense we shouldn't be doing. But that is interesting that it had sort of a more relevance when it came out than even intended when they set out to make it. Yeah. All right. Time for our patterns. Angry white guys. I mean... The angriest people are in Who's Afraid of Virginia Wool. <laughs> if we're talking toxic masculinity, it's Alfie. Yes, it's Alfie 1000%. We already described him as the Andrew Tate of 1966. I mean, everyone in Who's Afraid of is so, they're just so vicious. I know. And it's great. Okay. So Biopics. We've recently had a
0: discussion about what counts as a biopic, and we've decided yeah. it has to start like... Pre whatever they're big and famous for early in their life to their death. So I don't think a man for all seasons counts as that.
1: When we're talking about soup to nuts, at first we were like, it has to start in childhood, but then we were like, it doesn't have to start in childhood, but it has to be the arc, right? Yeah. The pre what they're known for to the usually their death. Right.
0: (laughs) So I don't think a man for all seasons quite fits into that. So we're we're on zero for zero
1: on biopics. How are we for original ideas? We're zero for zero on original ideas. A Man for All Seasons comes from a play. Alfie was a play. The Russians Are Coming was a novel. The Sand Pebbles was a novel. And obviously, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was a play. It's all adapted this year. Yeah.
0: Feels like not a big deal, really. No. I think we're learning it's not super meaningful. And while there was a very fun series of horse scenes in The Russians yeah. Are Coming, no horse, death, death. This year. thank god <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay anything else you would like to say no i thought it was the, Feel good about okay it. year what are we talking about next time on the podcast what year we're still in the 60s we're going to be covering the 36th
0: academy awards or the films of 1963 the nominees were america america Cleopatra. So a reunion of our loves, Liz, Burton. Liz Taylor and Richard Burton. We'll Whoa, see how they are in no that Liz film. Yeah, I Liz Burton? Yeah. They, they, I don't think they, they weren't married at the time. No, that's where they had their affair on Cleopatra. Yeah. So we'll come back to them, see how they are. Next is How the West Was Won, Lilies of the Field, and Tom Jones. Very exciting. Have you seen any of these? I have not. Not a single Me one. Me neither.
1: Spoiler alert for the listeners. There might be some complaining because most of these movies are very long. <laughs> they are. <laughs> There's,
0: except for lilies of the field which I think is less than 90 minutes
1: yeah because Sidney Poitier would never do that to us that is going to be an <laughs> oasis in
0: the <laughs> desert of
1: 1963 <laughs> that's already how I'm feeling about it yeah but so we'll see okay you never know when something's going to be our next judgment at Nuremberg that's true we were like oh so long and then it was wonderful yeah so okay, keeping an open mind In the meantime, come to us with your comments, questions, concerns, and thoughts about any of this and like watch Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and maybe also watch The Russians Are Coming and tell us what you thought of them. We'd like to know. Reach out to us at oscarswrongpod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Letterboxd at oscarswrongpod and we have a website, oscarswrongpod.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend, leave us a review and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts.